This episode and all of our South by Southwest coverage is brought to you by Vimeo, the new home for 360 video. Hello, I'm Oakley Anderson Moore, and you're listening to the No Film School podcast. Today, we're jumping into the adventurous world of the documentary producer. From sitting in a ditch in Greenland's below freezing weather to pulling out an intensely personal story from a cut that's maybe a few hours too long, experienced producers Kate McLean and Glenn Zipper embody the sort of intrepid attitude that a producer of a nonfiction film tends to need. What exactly does a documentary producer do, and why would you become one? Here's our illuminating conversation that we originally recorded at the South by Southwest Film Festival, where Kate and Glenn premiered their latest respected films, Bill Nye's Science Guy, and Ramblin' Freak. You'll catch a few sounds like a passing samba parade that give you an idea of what it's like to premiere smack dab in the middle of the fest. So this is Oakley Anderson Moore from No Film School. I, at the time of recording this, am sitting in downtown Austin at South by Southwest, and I'm sitting here with two very talented documentary producers. I have Glenn Zipper, who's here with Ramblin' Freak, and Kate McLean, who's here with Bill Nye, Science Guy. Thanks, guys, for uh, being here to talk to us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So why don't you guys start us off? Um, I, I'd love to hear, because uh, producers on documentary and on any films often have all sorts of types of positions that they hold. So to start us off, let us know, you know, uh, introduce yourself and tell us, you know, what kind of role you had as a producer on the film that you're here at the festival with. Um, I guess I, I'm a producer on Bill Nye Science Guy, and my role was to work in the field on shoots often, um, and then also work on fundraising um, and uh, watch cuts. I mean, I, you know, it's kind of a it's kind of an everything position. Um, I think just another another brain um, on hand as we're working. A third brain, because you have yes. two directors, so you're, you're brain three. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that is always a tricky question. What does a producer do? So you know, I sort of coined a little joke a while back to say that as a producer, what we do is we take a director's dream and we make it our nightmare. <laughs> um, and uh, that's, that's truer than I'd like to admit. Uh, on Rambling Freak, which I'm here at South by Southwest with, that was a, a really unique experience, uh, truly like no documentary experience I've ever, ever had before. Uh, so the, the whole film, or my interaction with the film, my relationship with the film started with Parker Smith, our director, sending me um, a message on Instagram, asking if I would help him with his film. And am I allowed to? Am I allowed to curse on this podcast? Oh, by all means. Okay. Well, he said it's good shit. I swear. <laughs> and he sent me a teaser that made absolutely no sense. Um, but it, there was something magical within it. And so I reached out to him. I said, when can you get me a full cut of the film? And he said, I can, I can get you a full cut in the film in maybe two or three years. And I said, what are you talking about, man? And he said, well, he said, this teaser, I had to go down to the Austin Public Access Channel and they take pity on me and let me cut together this teaser, but I don't even have an operational laptop. So because I'm a sap, I, I sent him a computer and some editing software, oh. and then we were off to the races. I love that, the Instagram message to begin with, and that you sent a computer. Kate, maybe can you follow up, um, you know, 
you mentioned being the third brain for Bill Nye, science guy. How did you meet the directors, uh, David Alvarado and Jason Susberg, to, to come on with them? Well, um, Jason Susberg and I have known each other since college, and we're married. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, so we've the worked together. <laughs> we've worked together a long time. Um, and I, I met David while he and Jason were in grad school together at the Stanford Doc program. So um, when Jason and David were working on their first short film, The Immortalists, which was here at South By in uh, 2014, um, I produced that as well. And we kind of developed a, a way of working together. And then this time around on the, on the Bill Nye film, um, Bill Nye Science Guy, uh, it's a bigger operation. We have more producers involved, but um, you know, I, I, I like being part of that core team of folks, um, even though we also have uh, a really excellent producer, Seth Gordon, who is involved, who's done some amazing work like King of Kong and um, produced Gleason and Undefeated. um, And he's been kind of a a wonderful um, advisor and and, uh, thinker and collaborator on this process as well. Okay, so I've heard how both of you met uh, your directors. Uh, One of you is married to one of them. So what kind of happened next in that process, um, you know, Glenn, after you made that initial contact, for example, what as a producer, you know, after that, because I'm always so curious, like how exactly, what is the best way to produce a documentary? So what was your process, you know, after that initial decision of meeting the director or knowing you're going to be involved in the project? What comes next? Well, again, you know, it's, it's very different, you know, from film to film on this particular film, which Parker made all by himself. You know, it's truly unique film in that, you know, he's not only the documenter, but he's the film's main subject um, and is also an intensely personal journey that he takes you on. Uh, I didn't feel it was appropriate to interject too deeply into his process because the film was so personal. But because he was inexperienced uh, in terms of, you know, delivering a film and getting it out into the world, that's really where I applied myself and, and what we needed to do. And I brought in some other team members, Sean Stewart, who produced uh, All Things Must Pass, which was here uh, a year or two ago, and uh, and Kate Logan, who is actually a director who, who won the Audience Award at, award at Slam Dance with uh, Kidnap for Christ a few years ago. Um, what we did was we imposed some boundaries on Parker. And, you know, uh, starting with, um, he sent us a two hour and 10 minute cut, <laughs> which it was probably, you know, his version of like a, of like a director's cut, not even like a, like a, he thought he had already taken, you know, plenty out of the movie. Eventually we'll do like a real director's cut and you'll need to get like an external, like two terabyte hard drive in order to watch the director's cut. Cause it'll be like 17 hours. But, um, you know, he said, Parker, you need to cut. I knew he needed to get about 30, 40 minutes out of the film, and, and um, but I knew that would terrify him, so I told him, you need to cut 10 minutes out. You know, of course, his response was, well, maybe I can cut one or two minutes out. But, so, you know, it was sort of working with him to get to that place where the film was, you know, consumable to a larger audience, and, you know, uh, with, for any director, you know, a film is an intensely personal, you know, process and journey, but particularly so for him on this film. So it was it was a delicate process getting him there. So there was that, and then sort of educating him on the process of you know, getting a film into a film festival, and all the things that he he needs to do, including you know how he needs to conduct himself when he is at the festival and inter, inter, interacting with people like yourself. You know, he gave his first interview ever the other day, and they asked him if he was going to. Uh, go to his screenings and he says, I'm going to try, but I have, you know, a shift in the morning delivering tacos, so I'm not sure I'm going to be able to make it. You know, so that's that's who we're dealing with. And he's a remarkable guy. So, Glenn, I'd love to just follow up with you on that. Um, 
because since you came onto the project after most of the footage had been shot and some of it's found footage, is that normally when you like to come on or do you like to come on earlier during production on a film? I don't particularly have a preference. You know, I, I got into the business of producing documentaries to just to have an opportunity to help tell stories. So, you know, we sort of take a movie where we find it. And, uh, you know, in many instances, um, I come on board when um, we're just at the idea stage. You know, sometimes we don't even have a filmmaker. Other times we have a filmmaker who's um, looking to have me help them um, have the rubber meet the road. Uh, sometimes there's just a little bit of footage. Um, and sometimes, you know, a uh, film's almost completed. I mean, there's, there's definitely every flavor. Um, we were just talking about Seth Gordon. You know, one of the earlier films I produced in my career was Undefeated, um, which um, uh, Seth and I produced together with a bunch of other talented producers, Rich Middlemas and Ed Cunningham and, and Dan and TJ, the two directors. Um, in that film, Dan and TJ just had about seven or eight minutes of test footage that they had filmed down in, in Memphis that was remarkably compelling, and we just had to find a way to get in the money and get it done, you know. And then from there, you know, it was another you know 18 months before we showed up at South by. I think that's about the right time frame. Yeah. So, Kate, you you know you have a different experience with Bill Nye, Science Guy, because um, for this one you were working on the production. What did you guys do ahead of time to plan for your? for your shoots, how much of it was, like, Verite, how much of it did you have a plan, and, you know, what was that process like? That's that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I think a lot of the plan was just, Bill, what are you doing? Can we come? Um, and kind of building a relationship and getting to a point where we could feel a story starting to unfold. Um, I think the exception to that was we had a pretty magnificent shoot in Greenland that was like a total highlight of the filmmaking process. And that actually came out of the fact that we were with Bill during a visit to the National Ice Core Laboratory, which is this repository in Colorado of um, ancient ice cores drilled out of glaciers that um, contain little pockets of atmospheres that can tell us a lot about the history of the climate um, here on Earth. And uh, the director of the lab, a, a remarkable scientist named Jim White, um, mentioned that he was going to Greenland, and we just sort of said, can we come? And out of that came this wonderful trip with Bill um, to Greenland. And, uh, you know, so that was that was something that we, I, I guess, you know, had a, had a hand in, in making happen, um, although Bill was really, really excited to geek out on giant drills in <laughs> Greenland and look at ice cores. Yeah, I've seen the film. I remember the Greenland shoot, and that one, there's a lot of cool footage. I want to say, are there like drone shots, or there's that part of the whole film, there's lots of cool stuff. Yeah, we had a small drone that we brought with us. So, yeah, I mean, how does that kind of change from a producer's point of view, how you're shooting, and how many, like how many different kinds of, you know, shooting setups do you like to work with? And maybe Glenn can also ask, answer afterwards as well. Totally. Um, I think every I think every film is different, and I think like Greenland itself, as a like a case in point, was different um, because the vastness of the ice is really really hard to get your mind around, and you actually need to get up in the air to conceive of how endless all of this really is. Um, and so we were really happy to have the drone operator um, Brendan Hall join us, and also be a second camera person, um, which was really nice because the other thing is that it's really cold and it's really tough conditions. Like down in the in the science trench, there's a, a trench that runs under the ice where the drilling happens and where a lot of the science happens. And it's negative 40 degrees down there. So um, audio equipment shorts out. 
like my sort of amount of time that I could be down there before I started to be too cold to really be very functional was about an hour. And, you know, so it was nice to have a second camera person so that we could tap in, tap out. But the actual scientists that work down there are pretty incredible and they do eight hour days in negative 40 degrees, um, sometimes with gloves off if they're working with like fine instruments. So it's kind of remarkable. It's insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Glenn, I mean, you know, when, you, when you're working on a production for Doc, are, they, are there different types of, you know, productions you, you know, prefer to go in with and to, as a producer, like, oh, I'll, let's do it small, let's do it big, can you adapt? It's really reactive to the story. So what does the story demand? You know, drones are an interesting one because it's, it's a really cheap way to get some beauty shots and beautiful shots and, uh, and uh, for better or worse, some directors tend to fall in love with it. Um, you know, working on a really remarkable film right now about the Flint water crisis called Lead and Copper um, with, a, with a first-time filmmaker named Will Hart. And uh, the film is, is coming out beautifully. But, man, he fell in love with some drone shots of, of Flint. And I said, you know, listen, man, you got to have a strategy here. If I see one more drone shot in this film, I'm going to punch you in the face. <laughs> and um, i got to make sure he listens to this. And uh, so, you know, it, it's... If you're going to if you're going to deploy strategies like that, you know you have to ask yourself: Is it driving the story forward, or is it just a little cheat, or is it a little trick, or are you just filling space, or you're just putting in there because it looks cool? You know, whatever strategy you deploy, that's really always the critical question for me: um, Is it driving the story forward in any material way? So, Kate, can can do you feel comfortable uh, telling Jason that you'll punch him in the face if he if you don't like the if he's doing something and that you think it's not conducive to the story? Oh, the, totally. We we argue very constructively, which I think is like completely important if you're going to be you know collaborating with anybody. You have to know how to disagree, and you know have to know how to how to make that disagreement productive um, and and move things forward on the story. Um, so we do that. Yeah, I mean that kind of makes me wonder. Um, how do you guys know who you would have a good working relationship? Like when you decide whether you're going to work with the director or not. And I mean, because, you know, a lot of our people on our site are probably filmmakers who are trying to figure out who they can work with, with produ as producers and vice versa. So how do you know who somebody, how do you know a director, somebody who you could have a good working relationship with? It's a really, really good question. Because um, I, I work as a producer on other projects, not not just with Jason and David. Um, right now, another film that I've been working on for a number of years, uh, Jamie Meltzer's film, True Conviction, is about to premiere at Tribeca um, next month. And um, I, I guess I find when I get asked if I want to produce something, I want to sit down and I want to hear about the story. And I want to go through, uh, well, first, I guess I want to see if I feel passionate about the story and excited. And I want to look at material and see what I see there. And then I want to talk to someone and, and see if they can handle constructive criticism, if they're collaborative, if they have plans, if there there are big holes in their plans. You know, it's sort of like a, it's kind of like a, first date scenario or like a, a getting to know you scenario, I, I would say. Um, and then, you know, in follow up conversations, you know, you get more comfortable and you kind of decide whether or not it's something you want to move forward with. But like, I don't know, there, there are lots of cases when I think, um, you know, some directors who need to bring their own vision forward don't aren't ready to work with a producer yet because they uh, maybe maybe they're the best advocate for their film at a certain stage. Um, 
I'm not I'm not sure that like every single project always needs a producer to bring it out. I think uh, I think our marching band is coming back through. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm curious how you would answer this. I would agree with everything that, that Kate was saying. Um, and I think that the first date analogy is particularly apt, but also on a first date, everyone's on their best behavior. Right. They're so, not in the negative 40 degree weather. Exactly. Ditch, exactly. Know. Or they're, you know, not just like, you know, hangry after, you know, 18 hours of editing without food. Um, Cause that's the rule. Number one, never feed a director. Sort of like, like gremlins, um, never feed them after midnight and don't get them wet. Um, but um, you know, one of the, one of the first, you know, lessons I learned that sort of a related sort of uh, concept to what we're talking about now is, you know, at the beginning of my career, I always thought I was going to reach the end of the process and still be like the director's best friend. And you know, over the years, I've learned that's that's a particularly difficult thing to accomplish because sometimes you, get, you have to, you know, if if you feel that you're doing something in the best interest in the film and it's um, in opposition to you know something the director wants creatively, you know, you've got to hold your ground. Um, and, uh, you know, I was talking about the, the Flint water crisis, um, film that we're working on now. And, and we, we had a real kumbaya start and we're actually still in that, you know, even after having worked so long, we're still in that good place with, with everybody. But I said to Will, sort of one of the first day when we were all feeling great about each other, I said, well, listen, when we show up at whatever film festival to premiere this, if you still like me, I've probably done something wrong. <laughs> I said, but after the premiere and, you know, you get your standing ovation, then maybe you like me again. So it's kind of like it's okay if you and your producer or your director and you don't, depending on your role, like don't always see each other's best friends. I mean, I don't want to overstate it. I mean, I was trying to be a little bit funny, maybe not successfully, but, um, you know, you don't want to be a jerk, you know, but if, if there's something that you think, you know, is important and, you know, and I'm applying my own experience, you know, doing this for many years, over 30 documentaries and as a first time filmmaker, I'm going to hold my ground. I think talking through disagreement and understanding one another's perspective is completely part of the process and important to the process. And people who are hostile to that are um, are tough collaborators to work with. You know, I'm I'm interested in people who want to have constructive conversations about how to make the best film. Life happens in 360 degrees. And now, on Vimeo.com, so do your videos. Now you can upload, watch, and even sell your 360 videos on Vimeo. Vimeo 360 means immersive eye candy, immersive adventures, and immersive storytelling from the world's best filmmakers. Plus, Vimeo has tons of helpful resources for all experience levels. You can learn how to shoot, how to edit, and even get roundups of the best 360 video gear. Join the new home for 360 video at vimeo.com 360. So let me ask you guys about um, sort of a different aspect. Because with documentary, you know, it's not a controlled environment um, the way that narrative filmmaking can be. Um, and so as a producer, I'm curious, how do you guys deal with, um, you know, production, you know, releases, dealing with stuff coming and going in the frame or, you know, a marching band showing up, stuff like that? And how do you deal with those sort of things as a producer in post-production because documentary then brings archival footage. There's always these things that are legal and logistical that are specific to documentary. What's your approach on mastering, uh, you know, that sort of seamless flow for on a documentary? Well, I guess, first of all, it's never seamless. Um, there are always all kinds of seams. Um, 
But, you know, you you can make a plan on paper and you should and you should talk about your goals and talk about the story that you envision. But you have to be fully flexible and open to the possibility that much more interesting things will happen around you. And you have to be alert and kind of listening and watching for those things. Um, and you might even, you know, you might feel them in the field, but you really might not find them again until the edit room also, um, which is kind of what I think is really exciting about making films in this way. Um, I mean, releases and things like that, like a lot of that is just staffing the right people, being alert in that way, um, you know, knowing how to nicely ask for permission, having good lawyers. Uh, there, a lot of that is just uh, kind of collaborating with the right people to help you be buttoned up, I would say. But um, the stuff that I think is really exciting and fun is about listening and being alert in the field to all of these kind of wonderful possibilities that you can discover along the way that are much better than what you could have ever planned for or hired someone to do. What do you think, Glenn? Is that what she said? <laughs> um, yeah, there's not really much to add to that. I mean, she's got it exactly right. And I think if you're going to come at that from a point of abstraction, it's just about being reactive, you know, and, and knowing that you're going to need to be nimble. Um, you know, there are things you could do to, to minimize the unknowns. Um, and there's certain rules you can deploy, like you know, if if, if we're spending money, um, real money, to go interview somewhere, someone somewhere, you know, I'll, my rule is I, you do not roll that camera until you have someone sign the release, right? Because you know, if someone give you the greatest interview in the world, and they say, well, I want to show this release to my lawyer, and then you're you're up shit's creek. So um, you can do things like that, but you know, that's one of the admonishments I give her from one before we start a documentary. You know, I say, listen, that we're gonna reach a blind alley at some point. We're gonna get hit with something unexpected that's gonna be a gut punch. But as long as you understand that that's coming, and you have you know, enough religion to the story that you're gonna be able to power on through that and get to the end, then we'll be all right. Let me ask you about your philosophy of the interference of the crew. Because in documentary, that's something people have like different opinions about, you know, the ethics of how much do you interfere. As a producer, if you see something happening that you think isn't working, uh, if you, you know, having someone sign the release ahead of time, that's one thing. But what if you're ha seeing an interview and you're like, this isn't working, do you tell the director, hey, can we stop and change this? Or like, how much, what are your opinions on how much you interfere with the thing you're trying to capture as it's happening? Well, the thing itself, if you're talking about what's in front of the camera, you know, not at all. You know, look, there's, there, there are some documentary filmmakers where if someone's walking through a door and they sort of like, you know, fumble with the doorknob and, you know, they say, well, that's, that's what he did. So, you know, or if they're going through the door and then someone, you know, a marching band goes by and they say, well, that's what happened. I mean, for me, I, I have no problem with saying, can you walk through that door again? Because that's not materially interfering with the story. I don't think it's, you know, you're not creating some sort of, you know, working fiction of what really happens. Just walking through a door, man. Sometimes a door is just a door. Um, but, you know, if you were to say to a subject, you know, could you say that a different way? Or we were hoping you would, you know, touch on, I mean, that's, that's a little bit more uncomfortable for me. It's not something I, I would ever do. But if we're talking about how, as a producer, we might, you know, quote unquote, interfere you know, behind the scenes, I wouldn't call it interfering. It's more like, you know, bowling bumpers. You know, if, if, um, if a director is, you know, working his way through an interview, there's an important point that he or she missed. You know, I would wait until we had a break, and you know, as we're having a cup of coffee, I'd say, "Hey, why don't you, you know, on the second half of this, hit on these two or three points?" You know, and if you're working with a director who's not going to be open-minded, something like that, maybe you've, you know, chosen the the wrong working relationship. Interesting, Kate. Do you, do you? How do you feel? Is that? Yeah, I, I would agree completely with that. I think I think it's all about, you know, being present and being an active listener. But it's, you know, it's all kind of good etiquette on set in terms of like 
picking your your moment when when there's a break in what's going on and you can share your perspective um, so that things can keep moving um, and being socially gracious, you know, like we all were raised to hopefully be. Some of us. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> yeah, so what would you guys say are, are the skill set that sort of you need to be a successful producer? I mean, if people are listening to this and they're like, I think I might want to do that, but... You know, what what does it take? What do you sort of need to be good at to be good in this role? That's such a good question. Um, and it really is kind of a squishy thing in some ways. I think I think you have to be comfortable in groups of people, and I think you have to be socially comfortable. I think you have to be someone who's going to speak your mind. Um, uh, I think, you know, you have to have strong and deeply held creative opinions. Um, and I think you have to have good judgment about stories um, and know what you like and know your taste. Um, I think in documentary specifically, you have to be a good listener. Um, like everybody on the crew always has to be a good listener. Um, and you have to be emotionally sensitive and thoughtful um, about the needs of the people who are in front of the camera. Like everybody has to be on the same page about that. Um, or that's something that I value a lot in my collaborations. And if I sort of sense that there's something like not right about that, that's like not a, not a collaboration that I want to pursue. Um, I think there are producers who are beautiful writers who specifically in the documentary space are excellent grant writers and who specialize in that, which is a form of storytelling in and of itself. Um, I think there are producers who are great speakers who do stuff like pitch forums and things, and that is a skill set in and of itself. Um, and then there are producers who are fantastic with money and run great budgets. And maybe there's a fantasy producer who's all of these things simultaneously, but <laughs> I... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. No. But you don't I, have to be good at all of those You don't things. have to be good at all of those things because the other beautiful thing is that film is always a collaboration. So, you know, you can find the section of those things that are totally in your wheelhouse. Um, and then you can work and grow and learn on those other things. And, you know, at least that's what I'm striving to do. I like when you answer these questions first because you do all the heavy lifting. And that's, that's a really great answer. I think, you know, uh, my job is maybe just always come in after you and just add a point of abstraction. And I think um, what I would say is in order to be a good producer, particularly if you're the lead producer in a documentary, I think you need to be the most resilient person on the crew. Because, you know, making, making docs, probably making any film, you know, there's a lot of failure. You know, you, you, there's an interview that you want to get, you don't get it. You do get the interview and it doesn't go well. You want a certain sales agent and they pass on the film. You want to go to a certain festival and it doesn't happen. Um, and, you know, that's our journey. And, um, you know, we go back to, you know, Parker Smith. Um, and, you know, this he's made this intensely personal film. And he actually applied to South by Southwest as first. And he got in and great. So it all worked out fine. But, you know, I can only imagine what it would have been like if, you know, the road was, you know, rife with rejection and how he would have taken that. And it would have been my job to say, we're going to be OK. Here's the plan. This is what we're going to do next. If that doesn't work, this is going to be plan C. And plan C is actually going to play out like a plan A. So don't worry about it. Um, and, uh, you know, you're sort of that, that fullback that sort of, you know, rushes through the line ahead of the, the running back or the quarterback and sort of, you know, cut that path for them to make it easier. You know, their job is to tell the story. You know, and I said at the beginning of the interview, it's, you know, producer's job to take a director's dream and make it their nightmare, you know, our nightmare on their behalf. And I think that's really true. You know, we, we do that heavy lifting so they can tell their story. So just to kind of, you know, close it, close this out, I'm curious, what would you guys say 
is what appeals to you the most about being a producer, especially in this documentary realm? It's hard work and all these things can go wrong for people thinking if they do want to follow this path. Like, what do you think, you know, what appeals to you and like what makes it worth it? Well, I mean, I think it's about being a facilitator. You know, if you're a director or a writer, there's only so much you can work on at any one time. You know, you're working on the same doc sometimes for a year, 18 months, two years. I talked about Kate Logan and, and Kidnapped for Christ at the beginning of the interview. That film took her seven years. Um, and as a producer, you know, if you, if you are passionate about storytelling, you can facilitate six, seven stories a year, and you get to work with different artists with different tastes and different aesthetics, and, and you then you, you get to engage in different types of chemistries. And, you know, that is absolutely exhilarating. And, uh, yeah, it's hard. It's totally a marathon. But when you do get to a place like South by Southwest or Sundance or, or Tribeca um, and, you know, the lights go out and, um, you know, the, the, the you know, main titles come up. I mean, it's, there's, there's no feeling like it in the world. I totally agree with that. Um yeah, I'm not sure I have much to add. Uh, I, I'm always like endlessly curious about people. And if you want to be sort of thrown into every variety and manner of social environments in the world, um, this is a great job for that. Um, and kind of experience dynamics and see uh, a lot of different creative methodologies playing out in like endless different uh, <laughs> scenarios and test cases. Uh, this is a great, a great job for you. So maybe one last thing I'll ask you, um, and if you need to take a minute to think of what, uh, if there's an anecdote that this might fit, is there one, can you think of one uh, one moment on the set of the film that you worked on, either Ramblin' Freak or Bill Nye, Science Guy, was there one moment that you thought was the best or that you really came through as a producer or as, as the most exciting or something that you did that you think, oh, that was really what made uh, my job complete on this film? It's sort of funny answers when, you know, he, Parker, you know, wanted to make a film and he didn't have a computer, you know, so like getting him, getting him a computer really was, you know, that was my, my, uh, my big producing moment. Here's a computer, Parker, now make your movie. Um, I also foolishly guaranteed that he would get into South by Southwest. So I would have had a lot of egg on my face. So thank you to the folks at South by Southwest who have no idea that I guaranteed it. I'm sorry, I will never do that again. I promise. It was terrifying. But he did get in. You know, and, um, but, you know, I think going back to you know, the, the last question uh, about, you know, um, you know what, what a, a producer does and, you know, and why do you want to be a producer, it's, not, it's about n- not fixating on any one single moment. There's just so many moments. So it's really more about the cumulative experience. You know, and then you know, the film premieres and, um, and then you know, the, the lights come back up and you're like, well, we did this. You know, it's, making a film is a huge endeavor. Sometimes you know, people like you and I do this quite a bit and you can get jaded, but then you have to remember, it's like, man, making a movie is hard. It's really fucking hard. And so when you do get to the end of the rainbow, you're like, that is an accomplishment in and of itself, regardless of what the movie's ultimate fortunes are. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. I don't know if there was like a glamorous moment when I like stepped into the spotlight and was like, I am producing. Um, I but, saved the day. Yeah. Uh, Bill Nye fell off a glacier and gra- grabbed his hand <laughs> exactly. right at the right moment. Hold on, Bill. Yeah. No, it was, uh, I mean, it's kind of a slog, honestly, a lot of it. Um, but like a delightful, fun slog that we should all be so lucky to be doing. Um, I think like 
they, you know, there were some moments in the edit room where I think um, I feel really, really proud that like I had the luxury of being able to be a person who could step away from a lot of hard work and then step in and watch a cut and have a key piece of feedback because I was less close to the material. I think there are just there are just tons of moments. And then there are tons of other collaborators who have hugely important moments when you build a really good team um, that make a film become what it ultimately needs to be. Um, so I think, you know, more than anything, I'm, I'm really pleased to be one key member of a really awesome team that we built for this movie. And it feels great to be here at South by Southwest seeing that go into the world for the first time. Yeah, definitely. And I guess in some ways, you know, the, the premiere night, you sitting in the audience as producers seeing the finished film, I'm sure in some way that's sort of the natural culmination of everything. So mm -hmm. congratulations, you guys. Um, your films are both amazing. And clearly you've worked really hard with your team to, to get this far. So thank you so much for sitting down and talking with, with us and sharing your wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's totally a pleasure to chat about movies with you. Yes, great meeting you and thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. I'm Oakley and this has been the No Film School podcast, which you can subscribe to and rate on iTunes, where you can catch all of our upcoming podcasts, including Indie Film Weekly this Thursday. 